Hello, and welcome to Occupied Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. My name is Sarah Ann Minkin. I'm the Director of Programs and Partnerships at the Foundation. Today's episode of Occupied Thoughts consists of a webinar that we held earlier today, March 8th, 2023. The webinar is called Allyship and the Fight for Palestinian Liberation. It's the fourth and last event in a webinar series that the Foundation for Middle East Peace hosted together with Al Shabaka, the Palestinian think tank. The overall series is called Learning and Unlearning Palestine. All the links you hear discussed in this webinar today are posted on the FMEP website. Just go to the events index and look up this series, Learning and Unlearning Palestine. While you're there, you can listen to the other three webinars that are part of the series. Thank you so much for joining us. Hello, everyone, and welcome. Uh, my name is Sadat, and I'm the current U.S. Policy Fellow at Ashabaka, which is the Palestinian Policy, Policy Network. Our event today is called Allyship and the Fight for Palestinian Liberation, and we're going to be discussing what allyship and solidarity has looked like historically and what it can and should look like moving forward at such a critical time. Today's webinar is the final installment of a series jointly organized by the Foundation for Middle East Peace and a Shabaka titled Learning and Unlearning Palestine. So before I introduce um, our speakers today, I wanted to just briefly contextualize this event and, and just give you all a little bit about why it's, it's important that we're here talking about this today. Um, so since the Unity Intifada of, of 2021, uh, many people, myself included, um, have spent a lot of time talking about uh, this shifting narrative on Palestine. And it's true, uh, the narrative on Palestine has definitely shifted, especially in the West, where we're seeing growing support for, for the Palestinian cause across varying uh, degrees across the board. Um, yet at the same time, we're also approaching 75 years since the beginning of the Israeli occupation, 30 years since the signing of the Oslo Accords, and in many ways, things just seem to be getting worse. Israelis just elected their most far-right fascist government. Settler terrorism has reached new heights, and Israeli hubris is off the charts. So while we've seen the solidarity movement outside of Palestine make huge strides, our efforts have not yet significantly impacted life for most Palestinians themselves living under directly under Israeli occupation and apartheid. So it's at this point in time, this... this um, this inflection point of sorts that calls for us to take a step back and discuss what the Palestine solidarity movement has become, where it should go, and most importantly, what it can and should achieve. So to introduce our speakers um, with us today is Nadia Tanous. Uh, she's a passionate community organizer, born and raised in the Bay Area, unceded Ohlone territory, uh, and she has a focus on um, political education, movement relationship building, and returning land to the people and people returning to the land. Nadia is a member of a Shabaka and a member of the, of the Palestinian Youth Movement. She currently serves as the Director of Operations for Honor the Earth, an indigenous-led multiracial organization that's working towards just transition. Um, Nadia also holds um, a master's in forced migration and refugee studies from the University of Oxford and a bachelor's in anthropology and sociology from UC Santa Cruz. Also with us today is Saleh Hijazi, who is the Africa campaigner at the National Committee of the Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions Movement, the Palestinian-led um, global movement working to end Israel's settler colonialism, uh, military apartheid, 
military occupation and apartheid against the Palestinian people. As Africa, campaign, uh, as Africa campaigner, sorry, Saleh sits at the steering committee of the Pan-African Palestine Solidarity Network. Prior to joining BDS, Saleh held the position of um, Deputy Regional Director at, for, for the Middle East and North Africa at Amnesty International. Previously, Saleh worked with Human Rights Watch and at Al-Quds University. He holds a bachelor's in liberal arts from Lawrence University in the US and a master's in human rights from the University of Essex in, in the UK and a graduate diploma in social studies from the University of Bahia in Brazil. So now, without further ado, I just wanna dive straight into the questions and hear, hear from our speakers. Um, you know, first and foremost, I think it would be you know really helpful if if both of you contextualize your relationship with the Palestine Solidarity Movement, um, and maybe tell us a little bit about what solidarity and allyship mean to you today, and 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 importantly, what it can achieve. Um, Nadia, maybe we can maybe we can start with you. Yes. Um, good morning for me. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I. I guess my my relationship with the Palestine Solidarity Movement starts um, quite early on for my life. Um, in 2012, I became um, one of the first staff hires for Friends of Sibyl North America. And um, we began researching the mechanisms of Israel's juvenile military courts and looking particularly at corporate complicity, which at the time we were looking at G4S. Um, and some of that research um, founded the uh, the G4S uh, boycott campaign, which I'm sure many of us are familiar with, um, and also, um, you know, went into Hewlett Packard free spaces, free faith spaces, um, and coalesced into the No Child Behind Bars speaking tour, and and so much more work um, after that. I think uh, after afterwards, um, I started to focus on delegations um, of people coming from North America in particular to Palestine through Eyewitness Palestine um, and developing their um, education uh, curriculum and a lot of the preparatory materials that people had um, in order to go um, on these delegations and, and be hosted um, through Palestinian infrastructure, um, put their tourism money back into the Palestinian economy and really meet with people on the ground um, to show uh, their uh, reality. Uh, we would train folks to say, okay, when you come back, you know that your responsibility, the expectation is that you'll talk about your trip um, and you'll talk about the conditions of Palestinians on the ground to um, your networks, both personal, professional. Um, and so people wanted to do that. And so part of that was also training them about how um, we know that it's difficult as Palestinians to speak about Palestine um, and to be legitimized um, when we do. And so it was really um, about trying to take a solidarity approach to growing um, awareness of the narrative and many narratives of our movement. Um, I, I could continue, I think just, I wanted to highlight those two because they were kind of um, pivotal pieces where I felt like I could um, invest my time in a explicitly Palestine solidarity space as a Palestinian, working on um, different pillars of our movement um, that, um, you know, uh, showed me different places where solidarity work really can make a difference um, and really does have an impact. Um, and I think what it means to be in solidarity for me um, is that if you're next to me, 
you're advocating for Palestine and for our political and for our human rights. And you're learning about what's happening on the ground and how to be a better advocate. Um, and if I'm not next to you, you're advocating for Palestine and for our political and human rights. Um, and I think um, that's um, the beautiful thing about a healthy solidarity network is that we Palestinians don't have to be there in order to advocate for our struggle because people hold it with so much importance. Sometimes they hold it like their own. Um, so I'll stop there. Thank you, Nadia. Um, Saleh, do you want to do you want to jump in? Yes. Uh, well, uh, all the thanks first to FMEP. Uh, Al Shabak and really great to be, um, you know, with Nadia and Tariq uh, today. Um, uh, and what a day to be speaking about allyship and, and, and solidarity. Um, it's uh, Women's Day, so uh, salute from Palestine to all the sisters all around. It is a day of allyship and, and solidarity. Um, but also, I'm speaking to you from the occupied West Bank. I'm in Ramallah. Today was a general strike um, uh, following a, another massacre. Um, uh, since the beginning of the year uh, in Jenin, uh, where Israel killed uh, six men and injured many others. Uh, so at this time of systematic killing, you know, ethnic cleansing, and, and, and just the ongoing Nakba on, on kind of like uh, on hyper mode, uh, I think it's very crucial that we're talking about uh, solidarity and allyship and, 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 and to be, you know, talking about in uh, and, and working through it, not just in, in, in webinars, but now after we're done and, and following in the following days. Um, so I'm as an individual and um, of where, where I have been working uh, for uh, the past uh, 15 years or so, I, I am basically in the uh, Palestinian liberation struggle. Um, I am in the joint struggle for freedom, justice and equality in Palestine. But it's also as it connects to uh, other similar struggles for justice, equality, and freedom uh, all around the world. Um, I mean, I think what 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 I, what I was thinking about, um, you know, the, the, this webinar and and, and the topics, um, uh, solidarity and allyship also brings to mind concepts of partnership, affinity, uh, collaboration. Um, in the Palestinian context, I think it can also include uh, protection, uh, support, defense. Um, and so this is where I am, basically. I, I have for now many years been working in and through these concepts and, uh, and currently work on uh, fostering and, and growing relations between Palestinians uh, and the global south um, towards um, a, a global front to dismantle Israel's settler colonialism and apartheid uh, for what that means in Palestine, but also for what that means elsewhere around the world. And we can come to this when we, uh, I'm sure we'll be speaking about the intersectionality uh, of struggle. Yeah. Thanks, Saleh. So I'm, I'm, I'm sure both of you are, are well aware of just how much the, the solidarity movement itself has, has shifted and evolved over the past few years and, and and much more so over the past decade or two, um, especially abroad in the United States and the West um, and, and, and Europe, um, but then also in, in other countries in South America and, and throughout Africa and, and, and so on and so forth. 
Um, and this this always, you know, seeing the shift of the solidarity movement over time, um, you know, brings always brings me back to this 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 Edward Said quote. And, and forgive me if it's it's you know cliche to to bring it up so so often. But in the 1980s, you know, Said famously wrote that Palestinians are are denied permission to narrate. And and I think you know, while while Palestinians do continue to be targeted and, and smeared up abroad for for speaking up today. Um, we, we've definitely made made very notable and significant strides in centering our voices and perspectives, um, especially over the last couple of years, um, especially, for example, since since 21, uh, 2021. And with this in mind, you know, from from your own experiences, what is you know, what where has the, the solidarity movement arrived? How has it evolved over time? And and, you know, has it become more robust and and, you know, Take, taking into consideration this this evolution over time, is it bearing fruit in achieving its objectives at all? Nadia, maybe we can start with you, and then and then Salah, you can chime in. Yeah, um, I I think you know without a doubt we can say um, from our shared experience that there has been a change of global consciousness and public opinion. Um, when it comes to Palestinian liberation. Um, and I think that's uh, evidence of the fact that our solidarity movement is stronger, but it's also shifted form. So um, it's growing. And so I think with that, we have to ask ourselves questions about how we build out some of the infrastructure and the direction um, for where we we want to go. Um, and I think the the benefit um, we know this as um, Palestinians who have a long history of our struggle, um, that we actually have central demands and those have not changed. Um, and so that's wonderful to provide a framework um, around, um, you know, the right of return, um, dignity for refugees, um, liberation of the land, right? These, these things that are core to um, what we've always demanded. Um, and those not, have not changed. Um, and so I hope that that means that we're closer to the demands. Um, we know that there's more visibility, um, you know, in the younger generation um, around Palestine. Um, I'm part of the Palestinian youth movement. Our movement is from 18 to 35. And um, I can see it. I can see it in the peers of uh, the younger members. Um, more so than I even saw it in myself um, and the and the peers that I had when I was going to university um, or out in the world. <clears throat> I think that um, just reflecting on um, BDS and kind of um, where it's uh, grown to, you know, I, I just saw um, a boycott campaign through um, DSA um, and their BDS working group. They're really moving from uh, consumer awareness boycott divestment, um, which, you know, we had always operated off of. Um, and it's it worked, you know, it has so many wins. They're moving actually to creating apartheid free zones and forming the stores to stop carrying Israeli products altogether, um, ceasing their distribution of those related services and contacts. And so they're kind of going the next level and saying, okay, let's try this out. It's 2023, let's try the next level um, of, of implementation and see what we can get from it. Um, I think, you know, 
another thing this question made me think of is that there are a lot of frames that people use to understand Palestine. And most of them, all of them are either true or valid or legitimately describe a layer um, of the condition of our struggle, right? We think of apartheid, settler colonialism, refugeehood, um, environmental justice, disability justice. And so in that, we actually have more room to grow and to have, um, you know, an intersection with other struggles or other focuses that do directly impact us. They live within what Israeli oppression looks like on a regular basis and accumulatively after um, 75 years. So I would say, you know, yes, there's more prevalence and support in various sectors of our struggle, even as there is a shared assessment and attack of these same sectors by Zionist organizations. I'm thinking particularly about the student front, for example, and the implementation or attempted implementation here that the IRA um, definition or the International Holocaust Remembrance Act um, definition of anti-Semitism, which pairs anti-Semitism with anti-Zionism. And so um, when we know that not only is it not uh, anti-Semitic to speak out um, against Zionism, but that there are uh, Jewish uh, people around the world who also are growing in awareness and um, their voices are also growing to speak out against the Israeli occupation, apartheid, and settler colonial violence. Um, and so this is something where I think uh, we, can, we can flag that we are being more effective because the repression against us is growing. Um, and it also, as uh, Saleh mentioned, it has real impacts on the ground in Palestine um, against uh, all sectors of our people. And it also impacts our youth, it impacts our elders, it impacts all of us who are living in the diaspora and who have to confront Zionism on a regular basis, whether that be uh, what you said, Tarek, around the permission to narrate, or whether it be the policies that are being implemented in order to actually uh, repress our activism, our organizing, and our connections with other people on campus, off campus, and in our workplaces. I mean, look, the, the question is massive, so I'm going to pick at uh, kind of part of it and, and, and try to build on, on what Nadia also has just uh, addressed. Um, and, but let me first say, I think, you know, you, you're very right in your introduction and now in the framing of this question to kind of anchor this on first the unity and dignity in the father of the 2021 and what happens in Palestine. And, uh, you know, and I, I'll be speaking of it, about this because this is basically my perspective, right? And I think a shift on the narrative, on of the narrative on Palestine uh, started with a shift of narrative in Palestine, right? So, and the unity in Tifada can be considered as uh, a vote, if you want, a referendum, uh, uh, a popular manifesto of uh, who we are, where we are, and what we want, right? So we are one in terms of people and geography. Uh, we are under uh, a settler colonial regime that imposes apartheid to replace us, uh, not to segregate us. Um, and uh, we want uh, freedom, justice, and equality. And we want the right to self-determination in our home, and we want our refugees to return. Um, so th that, that is th this is very significant, right? And it builds on something, things that have come before. I'm, I'm speaking about kind of popular mobilizing. And uh, here, uh, we, we could uh, bring into this the 2018 uh, Great March of Return, 
the 2011 uh, refugee march from Lebanon and Syria of return, and of course, then all the way back to uh, the first intifada. Um, so, look, the major uh, major struggle is 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 the narrative war, and uh, the solidarity movement is is a lifeline. It's intrinsic to the uh, liberation movement, uh, including in allowing you know then, then our voices to be heard. So, and I think we're winning this war. I mean, despite um, uh, all the uh, darkness that uh, kind of surrounds us now in terms of uh, the murders, the dispossession, uh, the uh, just uh, uh, this apartheid, uh, violent regime growing more uh, more monstrous, um, uh, we see shifts, right? And I, I'll bring, I mean, there are many examples to talk about, but one of them can be I mean, most recently, uh, for example, in uh, Africa, um, with the expulsion of the Israeli delegate from the African Union, um, you see how uh, you know those who have led this expulsion ensured that you know the African Union is no space for uh, an apartheid regime. Uh, they frame it such as, for example, the South African uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs. Uh, you know the way she talks about Palestine uh, of seventy-five years of oppression. And occupation uh, that this regime should not be allowed a seat next to us uh, of, of those nations who fought for national liberation and stand for justice equality and so th this is you know largely uh, what the solidarity movement was able to do right uh, uh, this shift at, at that level but you could also see it at, at then uh, other grassroots level uh, uh, where there is uh, massive support and recognition and understanding appreciation of then the Palestinian story and holding it up but also like what Nadia was saying, I'll stop here, perhaps like we'll, we'll come to address it because where, uh, uh, you know, the BDS movement celebrates 17, 18 years actually, and uh, be in 2023. And uh, the achievements have been uh, massive and they accumulate, right? Perhaps we don't have uh, liberation and return um, uh, right around the corner yet. Uh, unfortunately, we still have a long way to go. Uh, but we are coming closer to it. We're not going further away from it. Um, and, 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 and this is, to a large part, what the Solidarity Movement was able to do in you know, holding uh, those who are complicit in Israel's apartheid and subtle colonialism accountable, even sometimes on a smaller scale. You know, what Nadia was, is, is describing in terms of, for example, you know, apartheid-free zones. Um, I'll be going to Mozambique uh, next week. And they are celebrating for the first time the Israel Apartheid Week. And uh, a transportation company will be announcing itself an apartheid-free zone. You know, this is, this is amazing. This is, you know, for the first time you have, of course, there's historical links between us and the Mozambican people in, in, in the struggle for national liberation. There's been a gap. And we'll come perhaps to talk about, you know, solidarity pre and post-Oslo, because I think that's, that's kind of that the... Uh, you know, most radical kind of like cut in how it used to be and how it is now with perhaps some things lingering. Yeah. Thank you, Sada. So I think like, yeah, touching on on two quotes from both of you that that I think kind of stuck with me, just Sada, when you say the ma major struggle is over narrative and then Nadia, when you said that we don't necessarily have to be there in order to advocate, right? I think that kind of just shows the diversity in which the, the solidarity movement has expanded into and and even more importantly, just the, the different, you know, perspectives that are currently interacting. So 
I think my next question is, you know, considering your work and considering where the solidarity movement has come, who now today are the dominant voices within that narrative? Who were the dominant voices um, within the solidarity movement, um, you know, historically and 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 to present day? So, you know, a big a big part of this question, I think, for me is, you know, Palestinians often find themselves being drowned out of conversation. Um, for example, you know, one 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 major example is that Palestinians have been alerting to the world to Israeli apartheid and, and the death of this two-state solution, for example, for years, decades even. Um, yet it's only when these claims are, are, are repeated by, by white, often, you know, Jewish American allies that people tend to take them seriously and people think people tend to be like, oh, maybe it is apartheid or oh, maybe, maybe the two-state solution is dead. Why, why do you think that is? And, and, and how do you think these dominant, dominant voices within the solidarity movement have been evolving over time? Nadia, if we want to jump back to you and then. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I like Salah how you said this is a big question. This is how I felt about this one. <laughs> <laughs> and I think um, maybe just starting to answer it with a story. I, um, I remember um, people asking me explicitly at the end of the No Child Behind Bars tour, um, or I'm sorry, no, wait, it's um, No Child Behind Bars was a, a program of. Um, the Quaker um, organization, um, American Friends Service Committee. And so, of course, when you're talking about uh, collaboration, trying to take on uh, Israel juvenile military court, right? Israel is the only country with a juvenile military court. Um, we started to try and uh, piece together what it would look like to put that out uh, front and to, to use um, examples or stories or, or really um, to speak more about the conditions of our children and the many generations who have been imprisoned um, from very young ages um, as part of a larger tactic of ethnic cleansing um, and terror against communities who are either um, up against uh, settlement uh, seam zones or uh, within Jerusalem and talking about how um, the criminalization and incarceration of children is also paired with land grabs and annexation. Um, and so I remember uh, going around and, and we were speaking about the conditions of children um, inside a Palestine and corporate complicity. And we were connecting that um, with Pastor Amanda Weatherspoon um, on the criminalization and the incarceration of Black and Brown children in the United States in corporate complicity. Um, at the time, Hewlett Packard uh, was actually holding uh, the contract for the California Prison Directory. Um, and there were a lot of other connections that were really important. And so um, anyways, I remember speaking about the criminalization of Palestinian children back home. We were talking about this through the story of Hedtimimi um, and, you know, uh, the infrastructure of occupation, um, liberation theology as a vehicle for action, divestment from carceral systems, corporate responsibility. Um, and people would say to me, okay, you know, thank you so much for your talk. I really appreciate this. Do you happen to have um, a doctorate or a master's in uh, the history of the Middle East? Because, um, you know, I've read many books and, and I'm just wondering where your credentials come from, basically, was the question. So do you have a history? Uh, degree. And I think fundamentally, I share this, um, we can say today that it's ridiculous. But I think fundamentally, it's part of the pattern of what you highlighted, Tarek, of why are my experiences as a Palestinian, not legitimate enough to share, 
we do our research, all of us here, Tarek, Saleh, myself, we research, we write, right? And we also um, have constructed campaigns, not just with um, people who are experiencing the things that we're fighting against, but as Saleh mentioned, with solidarity partners who today no one would say, oh, uh, you are a South African and you're speaking to me about apartheid. Did you happen to go to school for that? Right? So I think fundamentally, and it's not the snark at education, we know how important it is. Again, we have to do our research, we have to study together, but we are experts in our own struggle. And as Palestinians, we're also protagonists in our own struggle. Um, and I think that's part of, um, you know, trying to um, work on uh, narrative and developing narrative with delegates when they came back from Eyewitness Palestine was really about um, voicing uh, Palestinian struggle in a way that didn't remove us from it. Um, and in a way that also worked to legitimize um, all of the references and uh, the bodies of work that we have to talk about our own struggle, um, our own culture, our own aspirations, um, and our own political rights. And so in this, um, I think we also were trying to shift people, and we are trying to shift people from only quoting uh, Jewish uh, American or, or Jewish scholars, and also quoting um, Palestinian scholars and others who have written on our issue and have that perspective. Um, and so, um, you know, it's less about saying, don't quote Ilan Pape. Ilan Pape is incredible, but pair Ilan Pape's work with some of the um, work of Nord Masalha, for example. Um, that's, I think, how I would answer this question is just when you talk about narrative, what are the things that are backing this? And trying to unpack also the, the, the fact that often it's easier to critique something that's far away than to critique the injustice that's happening in your own backyard, which we'll talk about later when we speak about solidarity. But it's the same sometimes foundational racisms or tropes that are actually uh, holding us back um, as a liberal society from being able to move into what does it really look like to support the self-determination of a people who are on the front lines of extreme violence and extreme repression. Um, and what does it mean to do that um, not in a politically paternalistic way, but to actually listen and to trust in their leadership to say, okay, you see a way forward. It seems hopeless, but let's try your way forward. Um, so I'm not, I'm not going to repeat every time that the question is massive, and I'm just going to like maybe address part of it. But let me say, I mean, thinking about that, I, I think it's very important when we're talking about the solidarity movement also uh, that, for example, I'm assuming kind of the, the three of us would come from uh, very similar backgrounds. We, um, uh, yeah, we all progressive values, uh, but it's not only the progressives who are part of the Palestine solidarity movement. Um, it includes progressives, anti-colonial uh, forces. It includes religious communities, uh, Christian and Muslim and Jewish. Um, uh, and these are large, uh, you know, in terms of, for example, the, uh, the churches who either, for example, adopted and carry out BDS campaigns are part of the movement, uh, or even those who are not at all related to kind of the BDS movement, in terms of, for example, Muslim communities around the world who do support in different ways uh, the struggle for liberation in Palestine. So it's 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 massive. It's broad. Uh, 
and uh, it, it's um, it, uh, and that's that's very important about it. You know, this is very actually uh, uh, good. Now, in terms of kind of our voices, the Palestinian voice here, and the narrative, and uh, and and. Uh, being allowed to narrate, and why now, for example, after so, like with apartheid example that Palestinians have been saying it for years, why now? Uh, I think it relates to two things. Uh, one, one is kind of the grand power structures that uh, we're always uh, fighting against, where the media, including social media, and I think it's when social media helped a lot, uh, but yet this, uh, you know, this uh, uh, supposedly kind of free for all uh, utopian space is not. It is controlled by massive corporations uh, who have uh, profit as the main interest and uh, and do silence, including us, and you know something that has been documented by uh, many, many organizations uh, in terms of Palestinian speech and what happens to it on Facebook, Twitter, and, and other platforms. So we're always against these uh, big power structures. Uh, um, a, we still managed to uh, to win some battles, but also, I th and I think that's that's very crucial in kind of thinking and understanding kind of the development, the historic development of the solidarity movement, of the liberation movement as well, is that we've come closer to speaking the liberal, liberal language. Um, and, you know, this is going back to kind of the, the Oslo uh, uh, kind of cut, if I may call it like that, that uh, before Oslo, uh, Palestinian liberation was was led by the armed struggle. Uh, it's not to say that that was the only uh, form of resistance that existed, but uh, that was the spearhead, right? And and you see at the time, uh, in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, it is these links with other national liberation struggles, with uh, other forces in around the world who made these links with, uh, with us, uh, um, and, and try to foster it. Now comes Oslo and uh, it, it coincided also with uh, global geopolitical changes, right? With the fall of the Soviet Union and, uh, and also many of the countries who were fighting for, for national liberations got their states and were uh, now uh, basically in the state building mode. Anyway, it's like massive changes. And uh, this this gap that that created uh, between us and and those uh, around that we had relationships with, we had to kind of rebuild, and we're rebuilding in a different way, right? We're re rebuilding also using different language, different methods, and so now you find the solidarity movement really focused on the human rights of Palestinians, right? So, um, and uh, sometimes there is that risk of uh, it's then. It, 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 removing it from uh, the political, uh, the crucial political context, uh, uh, you know, the enjoyment of rights must kind of come into the national liberation itself. And, um, so, uh, but that said, that um, even with this within this paradigm, uh, that uh, and with the cuts that happened in the you know early nineties with Oslo, uh, that uh, we've uh, both Palestinians on the ground on what we, they were able to do, uh, and also solidarity movement outside and how uh, it, it developed, were able to um, a, a, achieve uh, quite a lot. So, and, and part of this achievement, I mean, when we're speaking about apartheid, I'll end here. You know, the Palestinian Palestinian Palestinians have been theorizing about apartheid since the 1960s. You know, it was at the level of academics and intellectuals 
but really where that was brought down to then uh, civil society uh, work was in 2001 when Palestinian organizations uh, were at the Durban conference in South Africa, the anti-racism Durban conference in South Africa, and made a call to end Israel's brand of apartheid. Uh, 2002, you have stopped the wall campaign, and 2004, the academic and cultural boycott uh, of Israel campaign, in 2005, the BDS call, and, and there you have also apartheid. Uh, as uh, as part of the narrative of why there should be a boycott, divestment, and sanction on the settler colonial regime, but it was only until kind of these these two two years uh, that we've seen this discourse popularized. Now that you have major international organizations producing reports and doing advocacy around dismantling apartheid, uh, you have it being normalized in parts of the media. Let's say you know politicians and 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 there's there is now a big opportunity thanks to what Palestinians. Um, were able to achieve over many years. Yes, it took a lot. It took a lot, but uh, it would not have been possible uh, without it. Both Palestinians on the ground and those outside were pushing for that. Yeah. Thanks, Salah. I think I think when you raise you know the Palestinians pushing on the ground, that's a perfect segue into the next question. And and both of you mentioned that um, both of you emphasized that the the solidarity movement outside of Palestine is is very much characterized by diversity. Um, and with this in mind, you know, shifting focus a little bit to the Palestinian community in Palestine itself, um, you know, much of the Palestinian experience is, is characterized by forced fragmentation, which is, you know, a consequence of decades of, of Israeli settler colonialism. Um, and as a as a result, you know, the word liberation often has very different meanings and, and different weight for each of us based on our own backgrounds, perspectives, and, and, and relationships with occupation and apartheid. So some, you know, some argue that this fragmentation is 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 an obstacle for our, our movement, uh, a potential impediment to collective organizing and, and unified messaging. Um, so what I what I wanted to get your thoughts on is, you know, how have physical and at times ideo ideological fragmentation influenced a the the struggle itself and the the solidarity movement. So is there at all a disconnect uh, between what Palestinians want and what the solidarity movement is calling for? And how does that you know, play out in, in reality? Um, Nadia, maybe we can start with you. Yeah, um, I, I just um, want to start with Oslo because when you say fragmentation, just like Saleh, I always go back to Oslo um, as you know, the Oslo Accords solidifying our geographic, political, and economic fragmentation and, and the crisis that we see today, frankly. Um, and this this fragmentation is, is really part of why PYM was founded um, as an independent political and progressive organization, um, because we know that in the collapse of the PLO, there was a vacuum left in its wake um, and that our people um, will develop creative methods to have their voices and wills heard, but we're really missing um, the organizational structure and government structures um, that you know, could, could, could be a, a forum for us internationally. Um, and so, um, you know, I think uh, part of your question really hits to the heart of like, who gets to speak for Palestine <laughs> and what we have agreed on as people who informs that. Um, and so, you know, what do we have? Um, because yes, there is a, a disjuncture uh, often and we've experienced it, we see it. Um, so our central demands, we've mentioned them at the beginning, they can't be bartered and they can't be sold. So liberation, what does that look like? 
Um, yes, the two-state solution is dead. I don't think it ever existed, but I'm 31 years old, so perhaps somebody else would disagree with me um, who lived in that time. Um, but it's been dead a long time. And so when we think of liberation, we think of people, we think of land, and we think of all the things uh, that were taken um, when um, Zionism uh, became the dominant force in our region. I think uh, there can be differences on that. But we also have a central uh, idea and central demand of what liberation looks like because it pretends with the refugee population. It contends with the right of return of those refugees, and it contends with the freeing of our land and our movement within it, our self-determination and our future to be built upon Palestine. So we know that the Palestinian liberation struggle doesn't fight for Palestinian freedom um, without appending that to what's happening on the ground um, in Palestine, right? Um, we're not separate from our land as a people. Um, I think the other is authenticity politics. You know, it's very difficult. And I'm saying this as somebody who is in diaspora um, in North America. Um, you know, we've, yes, we as Palestinians have experienced really, really different things in our lives um, because of the location where we are and the relationship that Zionism has had to us. Um, and also, you know, direct impacts of war, um, you know, uh, lack of clean water, starvation. I mean, I would never say that my experiences are the same as a Palestinian who's living in Gaza or in Jerusalem, but do I have a legitimate voice in my struggle as a Palestinian? Yes. And I would say that it's Oslo that actually places us outside of our own struggle to say, yes, you are Palestinian, but you all over here are not. We know that 50% of our people do not exist in our homeland. And so we are not less Palestinian than our brothers, sisters, siblings who are on the ground. We just have different perspectives and we should use that to our advantage in order to advocate for our struggle. Because if we don't pick up our struggle, who will? Um, it's it's up to us. Um, I think you know we know the geographic fragmentation. We know political fragmentation, the economic fragmentation that happens back home and happens in diaspora. And I think, um, you know, this, this, this brings us to another consensus, um, which is actually, I think, newer and louder and is, has been paired with the Unity Intifada, um, which is that um, security coordination um, between the Palestinian Authority and Israel um, is part of the larger bureaucratic colonial body that the Palestinian Authority is for us. They facilitate our oppression um, on behalf of the Israeli state. Um, and it's a sad place to be, but it's not a, a historically, uh, let's say a historical place to be. Um, there are bureaucratic colonial governments all over the world who facilitate the oppression of their own people on behalf of their oppressor. Um, and so I think when we um, uh, talk about what this era uh, might offer for us, um, we we also we see you know the, the uprising and 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 Nekba, you know from 2020 to 2021 uh, to 2022 until this year we will see what the demands are from the ground but we know as Saleh mentioned we have a history of um you know different forms of struggle different forms of resistance whether that be arts and culture and film or whether that be uh, the right to arms and we also see that gamut 
being revisited, I think, today. Um, and that's because of the conditions of our struggle and what is happening to our people on the ground and the experiences of us who are outside um, thinking about what it means to be on the front lines of our struggle wherever we are, having to contend and push and take an active role. Um, and so um, I think, um, you know, is there a gap between what the solidarity movement is asking for and what we are asking for? There have been gaps. There are organizations that have worked very hard in order to close them or remedy them, like Jewish Voices for Peace. I was there in their 2017 conference, and they asked the question of what does it mean to be accountable to Palestinian people? And there was a lot of pushback. They had to go and revise the document that they'd presented as ready, but they did that work. And I think um, for those of us, you know, as Palestinians, there may be a gap in what we are asking for, because we are contending with the different conditions and the, the a different assessment of risk of what happens if we push this way, what's going to come back to us, what happens if we push this way, what happens to Palestinians here, right? So we want to be considerate and intentional about the way that we struggle forward. Um, but um, I think, Tariq, because because of um, the multiplicity of Israeli oppression and tactics um, in order to uh, suppress Palestinian movement, as I said earlier, and to literally increase our incarceration, our murder, we're seeing multiple massacres on the ground. Um, what does it really mean for us to get a central opinion on what we want? And I know that we have to struggle with that moving forward. But again, I feel like we have a baseline that is strong and that is clear and that has a strong framework and political narrative behind it. And it is genuine. <clears throat> it is still accepted by our people on the ground. To uh, um, look, um, to go back to kind of where your question started from on, on fragmentation, um, you know, it's been said here also before, it, it, it is the most devastating tool that has and continues to be used uh, against us. Um, um, you know, and Nakba as kind of the first major act of fragmentation uh, to Oslo. I think these would be kind of basically the two uh, and, and then everything that happened in between, right? Uh, after also the further fragmentation of, for example, Gaza West Bank, uh, the Al-Intisam, uh, as you say in Arabic, between uh, Hamas and Fatah, and, and 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 this is really the context we live in. You know, this this us being kind of spread out on to these geographical locations that are all kind of like separated from each other. We're not allowed, regardless of what the passports we hold or whatever, to be to be connected and and. Uh, and yes, that this is a major impediment uh, to us being able to um, act and decide as, as a collective. This is why we rely on then uh, these popular mobilizations that happen on the ground uh, to kind of really show the way in the absolute absence of any credible legitimate leadership uh, on the ground that, um, uh, you know, reaffirmation, what the unity in the father was. It was an act against fragmentation. At its heart, it was that, you know, identified basically this most devastating uh, uh, weapon used against us and saying that, you know, we're standing up. There, there's no way it's going to win, right? We are one geography and peoples. And so then how uh, the solidarity movement um, uh, uh, connects to that and how what it treats from that and, and then what it decides to do and how, um, it, 
sometimes it kind of helps, I think, to kind of uh, talk about what we are against rather than what we are for, right? Um, and uh, we are against uh, a settler colonial, you know, settler colonialism. We are against an apartheid that replaces, right? And um, and so this should be very clear now. And in terms of then what to do, um, there are three main principles for, I think, the solidarity movement to anchor whatever it does uh, on. One is the indivisibility of justice. Now, basically, an injustice somewhere is an injustice everywhere, right? So. Um, it, two is the intersectionality of struggle. And I think, you know, Israel really helps with just showing how much, uh, you know, the oppression and domination uh, that uh, takes place in, in Palestine is exported elsewhere. So Israel is not only destructive when it comes to Palestine, it is destructive wherever it is, you know, wherever it, put, it puts it. And, you know, there's plenty of evidence, for example, in Africa where, uh, you know, recently there was uh, the revelation by uh, investigative journalists on, on these uh, groups that spread disinformation and um, meddling in elections. Uh, the Jorge group, um, and that included places like Nigeria, Kenya, Mozambique, for example. Um, uh, the the spyware technologies, NSO, and, and others that are then uh, given and sold to the Spartak regime. So there, there is an interest. Uh, uh, by by people who are subject or victims of uh, you know these this export of apartheid in in fighting to dismantle uh, Israel's Zionist settler colonialism and apartheid. So and again, what 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 we are against here and, and the intersectionality. Uh, the third, I think, and and this is kind of the most crucial and what the BDS has been uh, you know kind of pushing for for the last eighteen years is that there is an ethical duty. Uh, if if there's nothing else, you know, to do, there's an ethical duty that you do no harm, that, you know, you are not complicit. You ensure that you are not complicit in the crimes that are committed against another people. Uh, and so that's where then it brings the struggle uh, for the solidarity movement really home, very local. And going back to really what Nadia just started with at the, at the beginning of that, uh, of, of this webinar. Is, is looking where you know you take action, you mobilize and you take action locally with this very significant impact that is gonna uh, then be felt in Palestine. Thank you, both of you. Um, so it's, it, I think it's hard to put a positive spin on, on, on the topic of fragmentation, but I, I think you know a, a silver lining that I think I've come to recognize of the, the physical fragmentation of, of the, you know, the Palestinian diaspora where we've all ended up is that it allows us to you know build a, a wider umbrella of support um just just because of the very fact that you know there are so many palestinians in the us there are so many palestinians in chile there are so many palestinians you know kind of around the world who are you know building support bases and building relationships intersectionally with other movements and so that kind of you know guides us into the next question and and what i want to talk about a little bit more about um Inter the intersectionality of the Palestinian struggle and, and how it communicates with other movements historically and in present day. Um, you know, going back to, again, to the Unity Intifada example, we saw, you know, when, when you know, thousands of people were taken to the streets in protest um, of, of Israel's onslaught in Gaza, a lot of that energy was, was 
sparked by the Black Black Lives Matter movement in the U.S. and 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 that kind of gave it an instigation. Um, and and so I'm wondering, maybe Salah, we can start with you, and then Nadia, I'll have a, a related question for you and and your 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 advocacy in particular. But yeah, what what is your um, uh, what is your perspective on on how the Palestinian struggle itself communicates and interacts with other movements um, historically and today, and how it's going to have to continue doing so in the future? Yes, so um, because I was saying that the, the, there is this really gap between how it used to be pre-Oslo and how it's it is uh, uh, post-Oslo, um, and you know I, I work a lot in Africa, and so and I mean unfortunately the the people um, I interact with and uh, kind of try to build, um, uh, collaborate with, have, have this gap also in memory. That they, they, they remember uh, the Palestinian Liberation Organization. They remember Yasser Arafat even on their own streets. Um, uh, and uh, they remember what also their own uh, national liberation movements have said about the Palestinians and connected to it. And, and since then, there's been nothing really until until now. Um, uh, that uh, uh, this gap has has had its its devastating, I think, uh, impact on 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 the relationship that we're trying to. Read. And one part of it is is really seeing how uh, you know Israel acts outside. Um, in in terms of you know, for example, again, I'm sorry to kind of bring it back all to Africa, but this is all in my mind that you know Africa as a continent is is the largest uh, market for Israeli weapons. Um, and these weapons are sold many ways, uh, some to the government, some to uh, armed uh, groups and militias. And, and it, it just, its role, its primary role is the fueling of conflict and, and corruption, right? Uh, in the DRC, you have Israeli businessmen who are, uh, you know, driving the massive corruption that is happening there, at the same time, really making a fortune out of all the miming uh, that they are in control of in, in, in that very rich country. And so, uh, we have, I think, as Palestinians, have responsibility to see where that, you know, how we intersect within those, because there are people on the ground who are fighting against this, fighting against conflicts in Africa and the fueling of conflicts in Africa, of corruption in Africa, in the uh, uh, sucking of uh, its natural resources, where Israel plays a major role, and and how we build that that intersectionality. Now, there is something I think that is, you know, very important to recognize that. Uh, uh, as Palestinians, perhaps again, kind of speaking from from the ground, and, and perhaps it's excuse because of then uh, the massive struggle of everyday life. That also our solidarity with the outside, like knowing about then other struggles for justice, equality, and and freedom, uh, is not as as I understood it used to be. Right. So I'm I'm born in '83, so I don't have that memory of, for example, really knowing at the time what was happening in. Um, uh, Angola, for example, but uh, what I know from my parents, from older generation, that there was a lot of consciousness, and there was an, always an active uh, role that Palestinians played also to connect to the outside, to support what was happening in other places, and not only kind of receive it, right? And, and, and this is very weak now. Uh, we don't know, I mean, you go on the streets and, for example, ask a, a young person um, about Kashmir, and I don't, I don't want to bet anything here, like you know, massive. But I can bet a little bit of uh, whatever that they would not know. Kashmir, they would not know Western Sahara. 
Um, maybe some would know about South Africa because we have a statue of Nelson Mandela in Ramallah, but you know, and and that, and that is a big problem. So there is also, uh, I mean, speaking about intersectionality, that it, it works both ways. It can never work on just one way, right? And 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 there is, you know, uh, a lot. And again, kind of speaking about and from a kind of very local perspective, a lot to do uh, when it comes to connecting to others. Because I know then when it comes to the Palestinian uh, diaspora and who are in exile, because of where they are, there are probably kind of stronger links. For example, uh, you know, Palestinians living in Paris would have relations with the Kurdish movement, for example, there, because also there is an exile in the diaspora movement of, of those people there. So maybe it's a different picture, yeah. Thanks, Sada. So yeah, I think that's really important. You talk about responsibility as, as allies in this reciprocal relationship. Um, and, and Nadia, I want to turn to you on that before I, I turn to some audience questions, because they're asking some really, really interesting questions and important ones. So the U.S. is also a settler colonial state. And, and it, within this theme of, of allyship and, and what are we doing, for example, to show solidarity with indigenous movements here in the United States? Um, do these relationships exist? Uh, obviously, they, they exist to some extent, but how can we strengthen them and, and, and how can we make sure that we are, you know, leveraging this reciprocal relationship that Salah highlights? Yeah, I, I, um, I think we will never know what relationships have existed if we don't do the work to build relationships in real time. Um, and we know that often the strength of our work is also built on the strength of our relationships because it's only through knowing each other, trusting each other, um, and finding um, uh, kinship in each other um, that we can really build a cohesive political framework um, and kind of uh, move forward into supporting each other's demands, um, you know, to the to the full extent of um uh, the the dignity, the self determination, the aspirations again that we are looking for, fighting for. Um, I think um, maybe I'll start with a story when when um, it, the Palestinian youth movement decided that we um, <clears throat> wanted we needed to show up on the ground in Standing Rock. And so we sent uh, delegations of um, young Palestinian people um, to Standing Rock. Uh, reservation. And we also uh, facilitated delegations of Palestinians um, there, you know, throughout a seven month period for that of that fight. Um, it was not the first delegation that Palestinian that PYM had sent of Palestinians to um, a native uh, a struggle, a frontline struggle, um, but it was a, a changing moment for us. And I think we very much at the time thought that we were the first uh, to do it um, because we were young. We uh, had looked a lot for information and we found absolutely nothing. Um, now, when we arrived um, to Standing Rock, we presented ourselves at the fire and um, a lot of the matriarchs said, where the hell have you all been? And we were like, wait, what? I don't think you know us. They're like, no, no, we know Palestinians very well. Where have you guys been? It's been a long time. And we were shocked. You know, I still get emotional. It was truly an emotional moment to say, okay, we actually have no idea what you're talking about, but please tell us our own history. Please teach us our own history because we have lost that connection. And we're here because 
we felt and we know that it's the right thing to do. But in some ways, I think as I got older and, and as I deepen my work and, and get farther away from that moment, the other thing that I keep coming back to is the way that actually the conviction of the indivisibility of justice and the internationalism that we are very lucky to have in our history as Palestinians and as part of our praxis um, actually did inform that moment because they'd informed my politics. And so in some ways, even though um, I, you know, I've learned much more about the PLO um, and the American Indian Movement's relationship, both through actually going to Standing Rock in 1973 um, um, and, and also, you know, participating and supporting a, a AIM in Wounded Knee um, and then in any of the struggles afterwards through the 80s. Um, you know, it's, it is actually um, important um, to talk about our responsibility. So I think it's twofold for us in the diaspora. We live in different places, different contexts. I'm born and raised first generation here on Ohlone territory. And I am not uh, a participant, nor is anybody in my family, a participant in the original settler colonization of Turtle Island or the genocide and of, of indigenous people. Now, we are inhabiting, as you said, Tarek, a settler colonial state who is active in the present genocide of indigenous people and many, many other crimes, right? And so I think when we talk about, um, you know, what, what has happened, we it behooves us to speak about that also in the present um, because we're taught in the American system that um, these things happened a long time ago, and therefore there's no remedy. When I became a land back organizer two years ago, um, actually more like three, um, and we started to build out the framework through Indian Collective um, of, of what land back means. Land back as a struggle um, has existed and as a, a, a political framework has existed uh, for many, many years. Um, just like we say also um, that um, perhaps boycott, divestment, and sanctions. Um, it create. We know that it arose on the scene in two thousand one, as as Saleh had mentioned. It's in a really important history. But that boycott is something that rings true for Palestinians because we've done it in the intifadas. We've done it before in nineteen thirties, and so it's not foreign to us. It just uh, evolves, right? It continues. So um, in the Lambach struggle, Lambach meaning. Uh, the literal return of indigenous lands back to indigenous hands and the reclamation of everything stolen when the land was stolen. Um, we know that, you know, indigenous uh, nations and individuals, collectives have been confronting active settler colonialism since the first appearance of settlers um, on, on their territories. For us, we started to develop uh, this framework because we wanted something that would be able to carry the movement in order to make central demands around a struggle that most people thought was already lost. So when you say we're going to undo the United States, we're going to challenge the United States from the inside, there are many different movements that have said that. Um, but in terms of actually the reclamation, the literal reclamation of land, so many people um, came to us with cynicism that that was possible. And now Lambach as a movement is not only taken off as a narrative, but we have seen so many pieces of land return to indigenous nations and it is continuing. And so I think um, to go back to your question just around solidarity and the connection, 
Um, you know, we live here on Turtle Island. We have the responsibility to be responsive to the indigenous movements and demands, the multiplicity of demands from many different nations whose land we live on, be serious about building local power. So not just send delegations to Standing Rock or to a national call when it happens, but to work proactively, again, what's happening in our backyards? What are we complicit in? as living here and what can we do to actually not just fight for justice to 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 name it but to really um be in solidarity with uh leadership where we live um to make central demands to make a difference on the ground and i think um what's been really beautiful is is seeing the stories again come back of the different ways that palestinians have been active um in uh indigenous solidarity and connections another one is um, the Palestinian um, uh, contribution to the formation of UNDRIP, the United Nations Declaration for the Rights of Indigenous People. Um, and, uh, you know, the PLO contributed to that and really said, you know, here's a way in order to advocate for yourselves on an international scale, because the United States doesn't have a conscience and they don't care what happens to you. They will continue to do it. Advocate to the international community and tell them what's happening. We know that that was a strategy that the American Indian movement picked up in the 70s. And we know now that it was um, the PLO who really contributed to creating some of those frameworks that became the UNDRIP, even though we as Palestinians are not allowed to use them because of the history of formation of the United Nations. And so um, I just want to highlight that because there are all of these different mechanisms. And we know today that, um, you know, the struggle continues. We will never do enough, but that should not hold us back by fighting to do more. Um, and that, of course, also pairs um, with struggling for the dignity and self-determination and justice for our Black siblings and relatives who are here also um, in North America. And to really figure out what are the joints and, the, and the, the fronts of struggle that we can take up, both the oppressors that impact us directly. So if we think about, of course, deadly exchange and the exchange between Israeli military training of local police force and the way that law enforcement um, you know, in, inequally uh, uh, subjects uh, black and indigenous migrant and refugee, poor working class people um, to the carceral system and to often surveillance. We know, as Saad had mentioned, those technologies are not only developed in Palestine and exported, but actually they're also uh, specialized, they're worked on, and then they're brought back. And so we have to think about that timeline as well. And I'll just end here also with other island nations or other nations that are occupied by the United States currently, such as Puerto Rico, the Hawaiian Kingdom, um, Guam, right? These are all uh, unceded territories that that um, that deserve liberation. They deserve their freedom from settler colonialism. Um, and we do, too. So our our. Um, our timeline, I think sometimes we look at Palestine and we've we've been frozen um, as a as a, a struggle in this time bubble. You know, other uh, national liberation or revolutionary nationalist struggles kind of move forward, progressed. They were able to move into the government. They were repressed. They've moved into neoliberalism, neocolonialism. We have those pieces, too. But there are lots of nations who are in the same place as us we're being held in kind of a time capsule where we're fighting the original conditions and original contradictions of 75 years ago. And I would say that in the Hawaiian kingdom, 
um, they're on the same trajectory as we are. We can see maybe 50 years in the future what it might look for us. Um, and I, I really will end here for my Palestinian uh, a family who are living in 1948 territories and we have a house that we live in that have been has been leased to us in our own village just for three generations because we're not nationals we're not Israeli nationals aka we're not Jewish we're not allowed to own our home and that to me resonates with the phenomenon of Puerto Ricans and Hawaiians being unable to live in their own territories and their own land, even as they were not expelled or killed in that first wave, it is these processes that are still at place to kick them out and to continue to ethnically displace them. Thank you, Nadia. So we only, I, I mean, I, I want to keep talking about this, but we only have a couple couple more minutes left. Um, and I, I do want to get to some of the questions, which, which I feel are important. Um, so I'm just gonna I'm gonna you know ask one or two and 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 try to weave them in together to to fit them into one. Um, so the, the first question we have so in, in North America and and I think this also applies to uh, across the globe. There are there are many groups that advocate for for Palestinian liberation. Um, each you know educating their respective cons constituencies to take action. Um, so the question is like while maintaining their unique. Um, activity and, and and their unique work. How can we bring these groups together on occasion when needed, um, as to speak with a common voice as one? How do we go from these very localized, um, you know, uh, activist groups to one one greater, potentially more unified, effective voice? Um, do I guess do either of you want to take that and and try to answer that? Do any of you feel strongly about it? I, I feel that you can, can, can actually, uh, you know, say a lot more on this, but uh, I, I mean, very, very briefly, I think, I mean, um, a, you know, education organization and, and kind of thinking locally uh, in terms of what to do, and especially when, uh, uh, you know, there, there is um, whatever, a company, a council, uh, you know, your own state that uh, uh, the country is complicit uh, in, uh, in apartheid and septic colonialism. I, th I think this is, would be the most effective uh, kind of way of, of taking action. And then, like, you don't have to work. Nobody has. And I think there is no place for hegemony here where, um, you know, uh, there is kind of a centralized way of making decisions and, and bringing everybody together in this kind of one uniform. Um, but we can think about, uh, uh, always think about the front politics, how, you know, you bring different people together to uh, establish a front. And here, what we really need is a front for the dismantling of settler colonialism and apartheid. And that affinity is really the key word, right? So, uh, it, it is not that uh, we're all uh, fighting under the same banner, uh, but uh, that uh, we have this, and again, you know, intersectionality, I think is the key word, here. We, have, we intersect here, we, we don't, you know, there's no domination or hegemony, but that, and we see where this intersection is, and how we can kind of take it forward and, and grow from it, so, yeah. Uh, I like that answer, Saleh, a lot. I think uh, another uh, way to to stream it or to to join uh, us together is around uh, campaigns. 
um, as I would say as an organizer, but I think we are really tasked with, um, yes, bringing more people in, but also finding a couple of campaign targets um, that will have uh, direct impacts on the conditions of Palestinians and of many other people. Um, because often in terms of if we talk about corporations, we know that uh, their tactics are not, um, you know, contained to one geographic area, region, and often mineral. Um, they really are engaged in uh, exploitation and extraction, uh, murder, and being a front often or an enforcer for state repression uh, all around the world. And so I think it behooves us to really think about what is our uh, next campaign target. Um, and then also, what does it mean to hold uh, states accountable? I think there are um, tactics uh, or, or certain things that we can get behind. This is kind of an odd answer, but, you know, we, when, when Saleh, when you say putting, you know, challenging apartheid and settler colonialism globally, I really think about the, the Angela Davis quote about putting the state on trial, um, which Ahed Tamimi also used when she went before the court. She, she said, I'm putting you on trial. You can't put me on trial um, because you don't have any morals. You don't have uh, any, uh, any, um, uh, grounding to judge what is right or wrong for me. I'm going to judge you. Um, and so um, I think really uh, positioning the criminality of the state, um, especially when we see the uptick of trying to distract around um, our people's movements by highlighting, of course, our violence, um, quote unquote, and decontextualizing the mass violence of the state. Um, so I just want to say, um, you know, one of the last things that uh, took place December 31st, 2022, the United Nations General Assembly voted to request an advisory position from the ICJ or the International Court of Justice on Israel's occupation of the Palestinian territories. Um, and um, as that, you know, happened, there, there has been a political effect. We know that most of the international law that applies to us is soft law. Um, and uh, that's too, too, too much, little time to go into that. But I think, uh, read the question that was asked, we should look for these moments of breakthrough to figure out how we can actually create either narrative around it or how we can create um, a, a parallel uh, campaign and or set of uh, demands that actually append to it and strengthen it. Because whether or not um, we have investment in the United Nations creating a political uh, remedy to our uh, condition as Palestinians, we know that this is a big move for this to be moved forward um, for the ICJ, because at the end, it can produce something. So it looks like we're we're all out of time, but thank you, Nadia. Thank you, Sada, both for for this really important conversation, um, and and thank you all for for joining us today. Um, I, I think I had a great time. I hope I hope you all found this this helpful. Um, so please please make sure to check out the FMAP website and the Shabaka website as well for resources related to this webinar and 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 lots of other content um, on Palestine. And make sure you subscribe to Occupied Thoughts podcast and Shabaka's Rethinking Palestine podcast um, to, to also stay up to date, to debate, to date, sorry. Um, so you can also find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. And the recording of this event is going to be also posted on, on YouTube. So with that, I'm going to sign off. And thank you again to everyone for coming. Thank you, Nadia. And thank you, Sala. Thanks, thanks, Tommy. Thanks, Nadia. Thanks, Tommy. Thank you.
you so much. Thank you all.